primary care knowledge boost, cardiology and gastroenterology advice and guidance themes. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And today we are talking to some previous guests who've been on the podcast, GP Dr. Nikesh Vallab, um, consultant cardiologist Dr. Karthikian, and consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Bliss. Yes, um, we've been using advice and guidance in Wigan for a few years now and we've found it really useful, but we've joined up with the team to find out how much it's being used and they were also quite keen to promote it and to celebrate it and to talk about it really. So we thought it was a great opportunity to get some common learning themes out of them and sort of just ask lots of clinical questions <laughs> as they came up. Um, and so we do talk about heavily anonymised cases um, so it was also an opportunity to ask them how advice and guidance fits in to referrals and to challenge them on its role in managing referrals and where clinical responsibility lies. Yeah, exactly. Um, and remember, all the clinicians that we talk with are based in Wigan. So just bear in mind that your local systems may be different, though uh, we know that most areas in England have adopted this system now. So um, what we talk about should be relevant. And if it isn't, there is clinical learning in there as well for you as well. Yeah. And actually, just on that point, um, we do have previous episodes way back in 2019 with Dr. Um, Phil Bliss and Dr. Karthikian all about different themes that actually are quite common for advice and guidance. So you can also refer to them as well. And they're purely clear clinical <laughs> but enjoy radio so we always kick off our episodes with introductions and um, we've got a few more people on today so i might just manage the introductions but if we maybe go around uh the screen maybe starting with um karthik then nikesh then phil and um, if you could introduce yourself and uh just give a bit of background um i am dr vj karthikian i'm an interventional cardiologist working between wwl and teaching hospitals nhs foundation trust and the manchester foundation trust and I essentially am the sole cardiologist who does the advice and guidance and the uh, vetting of e-referrals from primary care, as well as from secondary care. So I'm Nikesh Vallab. I'm a GP partner in Wigan, and I'm a clinical director for Swan Primary Care Network, which is a network up in Wigan as well. Uh, and I'm here today as, as a primary care clinician, but also as a, the primary care lead for advice and guidance in Wigan as well. Yeah, I'm Phil Bliss. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist at WWL. Like Karthik, I tend to field the overwhelming majority of the advice and guidance for gastroenterology. Perfect. So we're all well versed in advice and guidance then, which is what we needed today. So we thought we'd start, Nikesh, by asking you kind of what the situation is in Wigan for advice and guidance, um, kind of a bit of scene setting, how it came about, um, what role it fulfills. Yeah, so I think if we sort of go back maybe about three years, so it was July 2018, um, advice and guidance became active in Wigan. And I think that's fairly similar to other areas in, in Greater Manchester as well. I think it came in pre-pandemic times when we sort of asked the question that do, do all patients need a face-to-face -face appointment? So whether that's general practice, whether that's secondary care, there are patients that we would see where we thought we could have maybe dealt with this slightly differently. And what if I have a patient who I just need some advice for? So we see a lot of patients in general practice where we just want some advice about how to manage them, some support with an investigation that's come back that we're not sure what to do, or even sometimes if we do feel we know what we want to do, but we need that specialist support to help us with that as well. Uh, and that's where we, we sort of came with advice and guidance a while back. 
And what we really felt was, is hopefully through that advice that comes back to general practice from, from our hospital colleagues, it also provides um, an element of education as well. So if we've asked for a particular advice for a patient and we, we've then utilised that, if we then see something similar again, we're, we're not likely to necessarily ask for advice or refer that patient because we, we've sort of learned through that, that previous experience. And I think advice and guidance in Wigan, and, and again, it's a similar picture across Greater Manchester, has really grown over the last three years. Um, some of it through what we've worked on, um, and some of it I think has really been driven by um, changes in the pandemic as well. So if we look at what where we're up to today, I guess, with advice and guidance in, in Wigan, we've got nine specialities now on board with advice and guidance and seen a real big uptake in the utilisation of that. And I think a lot of that comes back because of positive feedback from general practice and also a lot of positive feedback from, from patients. And when we look at the, the alternative in terms of waiting to be seen in clinic, we're now getting advice back from our, our consultant colleagues within a week for patients and that really does provide that rapid clinical response to patients um, who, who really need that and we're quite fortunate that if it does need that face-to-face review in secondary care that advice can automatically get converted rather into a face-to-face appointment in clinic with secondary care um, so at the moment we get roughly about 10 percent of our referrals going through this route of advice and guidance and, and, and again like we've said some really positive feedback as well. Fabulous thanks for that background um, Nikesh that's really helpful to set the scene and then I guess for the floor for everybody um, why do you think it was important for us to talk about it today kind of as a podcast episode dedicating time to speak about it? If I kind of give that primary care perspective and then obviously open that up I think what what we've seen as a system in especially during the pandemic, is that there's increased pressures right through the system. So there's a lot of pressure within secondary care in dealing with the acute element of of the pandemic. And there's also a lot of pressure now in primary care where patients haven't necessarily come in during the first wave. Uh, There's delayed presentations. I think long-term conditions have have been less well-controlled, you know, during the pandemic as well. So we're starting to see that we are seeing a lot more patients and we're also ending up having to refer a lot more patients as well. And what that leads to is a significant backlog for patients waiting to be seen in clinic for for, for routine care. So I know in Wigan, again, this is a very similar picture nationally. Uh, We've got around 30,000 patients waiting to be seen in in clinic. Um, And many of those on average would wait about 16 weeks for an appointment, but there are some waiting almost as long as 52 weeks um, so we're, we're seeing, again, from primary care perspective, a real pressure of patients who are in that almost queue, as it were, to be seen where they can feel a little bit fed up, um, you know, asking if we can maybe see about speeding up referrals. Um, we get patients whose clinical picture can change as well. So some of them do improve, but unfortunately, some get less well during that time. So we see a lot more appointments, I guess, in general practice as well because of patients coming back to us while they're waiting to be seen. So from a, from a general practice point of view, I think quite an increased pressure, I guess, that's felt right through the system. It, it's been really interesting for me to get involved with this project right from the start. And you can see there's a massive variation amongst different practices. I've got some GPs who I, I know I get two or three letters a week and on advice and guidance and it always comes remember this case you just told it last time you were really helpful can you come back with this one 
so I think the idea of this podcast is to is to spread the net wider and get to get more GPs to engage. If they can hear the positive stories and the benefits from advice and guidance, then maybe we can get more GPs signed up to this. I know I'm uh, like a turkey voting for Christmas, a, a doctor asking for more work for himself. Mm-hmm. But in, I think we all believe very strongly in this initiative as, as, as a value to our patients and the, and the wider health community as a whole. So it's a PR pitch, if you like, an advertising campaign. This week's podcast is sponsored by Advice and Guidance. <laughs> It's interesting because we um, qualified just as advice and guidance became a thing, really. And so um, and especially with the podcast and sort of speaking to you guys about advice and guidance, we sort of had very first hand experience of it. And yeah, it's, it's been vital. It's been such a great lifeline for us. Um, so, yeah, thank you massively for both of your contributions, because I see your names daily and your advice <laughs> pretty regularly. Um, so talk us through the secondary care perspective, if you wouldn't mind, uh, both Phil and Karthik, if you could talk about how does it fit into your week? Yeah. What does it look like? I, I tend to try and do the log on at least twice, if not three times a week. There's some time allocated in my job plan now. There wasn't initially when we first started. It was a labour of love, if you like. We gave our services for free because we very much believed in in this. Uh, and it was a proof of principle, really. And we audited and we saw how much work would come through and we saw how many uh, advice and guidance requests were converted to an outpatient appointment. Because there's no point really doing advice and guidance if your answer is just send it to clinic. It was single figures of percentage of advice and guidance requests got converted to clinic. I was able to evidence how much time it was taking. And then, so it's now I now have two hours in my job plan a week. I don't have a, I don't have a set two hours. It'll be half an hour here, 45 minutes there, you know, as and, as and when the time allows. And because all the PCs in the hospital have got the choosing book e-referral system logged on, you can normally log on wherever you are. And Karthik, for you? I absolutely concur with everything Phil said. So we started off in cardiology, for example, with about 30 referrals a month uh, in 2018. And now I'm getting about 20 a day. Uh, yesterday, I, I almost cleared the ANG and today I've just logged in and I've seen that about 16 referrals from last night. So um, it is really busy and I'm enjoying it. Um, there are two reasons why I'm the solo sort of operator of advising in cardiology. Number one is obviously my colleagues weren't that interested. Uh, number two, I am not keen to pass it on to others because I don't want people to just say refer and refer and refer. I want to give some advice and make sure that advice works. And only if it doesn't work, then we really, really have to see a patient in clinic, we'll see the patient. But having said that, I want to make use of this podcast to say one thing and one thing only. My responses to GPs are a one-liner or maximum two lines. I'm not trying to be rude. It's only because I'm trying to get on and do as many as I can during the time I can sit and work on it. And at the same time, I give very succinct and and, and to the point advice to the GPs without meaning to do an actual letter saying thank you for your ANG and this and that. Yeah. So. No, straight to the point. I think that's the same for all advice and guidance, definitely. And it is, it's lovely in terms of, you know, if there are investigations um, that we weren't quite sure whether to order or what might be helpful or if a rapid access chest pain clinic would be appropriate uh, for atypical cases, then, yeah, you get all that kind of stuff back. Um, I had a couple of challenging questions for you. Um, One is, is it a way of preventing a referral? Is it a way of batting back GPs questions? I mean, from just looking at it from a, a, a general practice perspective, I think 
initially there was a feel of is this is this a way of trying to reduce the number of referrals that we send from general practice but i think what the pandemic's really taught us especially from a general practice perspective is that we've adapted now to almost a similar way of working in our practices so with the introduction of things like digital platforms we now get patients contacting us with a clinical request and we almost decide what's the most appropriate way of dealing with that so you know clearly face to face would be appropriate for a significant number of patients but some patients just want advice on a particular thing that they've got um some patients send pictures for example of their skin conditions we can sometimes see them much much clearer on a picture than we do when we actually see them in clinic and what we can then do is give a, a very very quick response or piece of advice which the patients can keep and, and use as well and this almost feels like an extension of what we're doing in general practice so we know it can work for us and including the remote consultations and we're almost doing the same we're sending a consultation request through to secondary care and asking what's the most appropriate way to deal with that and really utilizing their expertise to 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 maybe support us so i think my my kind of strong feeling about it is is we're moving from a a world where general practice and hospital work so primary and secondary care are quite distinct from each other to really opening up communication and conversation so i'm not referring to somebody somewhere else i'm having a conversation who, with somebody who's got an expertise in a particular area and within a week really giving that back to the patient so i think that would really be for me is one of the key elements alongside the education part of it as well yeah i, th- I think it would be wrong and disingenuous for us to say it's nothing to do with stopping outpatient referrals but it's not about stopping outpatient referrals it's about dealing with requests in an appropriate manner and i don't think anybody listening to this podcast would disagree with we need to manage our resource sufficiently and we need to deal with uh, uh, clinical queries in, in the most efficient and, and appropriate way as, as nikesh said i mean we, we get lots of referrals to advice and guidance and there's a lot that I, I'm sure would never have been referred to our patients. But because advice and guidance is there and it's easy to access, I think with GPs and uh, particularly some of the ANPs who work in GP surgeries, they make use of, of the advice and guidance service just to give a bit of reassurance. And I don't have a problem with that at all because at the end of the day, every advice and guidance query is a patient with a problem. And if we can deal with that with a 48-hour turnaround advice and guidance, and even if the advice and guidance is yeah, you do whatever that you're doing is is absolutely right. Carry on. Then, job done as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Um, so, as Nikesh and Phil said, it, it is not really about reducing uh, referrals or um, stopping referrals from coming through. I mean, if you can give sensible advice in a timely fashion, and that will help primary care colleagues to sort the patients out promptly and reassure the patients. That's our first and foremost aim. The second thing is, I also vet all the e-referrals on chosen book from general practitioners. Um, and when I vet these referrals and I so-called, so-called reject a referral, I just don't click reject and leave it at it. I, it is a form of advice and guidance. So mm. we can sort of reduce the number of referrals by giving appropriate advice, again, in a timely manner. Uh, so that the patients or the primary care colleagues do not have to wait for ages of, say, weeks for a patient to be seen in clinic, only to be told to do something really simple and straightforward, which can be done sort of early on. Um, in terms of investigations and management also, I mean, 
Um, yes, so there are situations where we have given specific advice for colleagues to try and request a particular investigation or a blood test, and that, that sort of answers the question more or less straight away. And that's, again, a big boon with, uh, with advice and guidance. Um, and then in terms of clinical responsibility, I think that was the other kind of potentially challenging question. If we are given advice over the advice and guidance format about maybe starting a medication, where does that responsibility lie? So as Phil and I said, we are the only lone clinicians in our respective specialties who deal with advice and guidance. Uh, And in addition, I do all the referrals. I personally find it quite difficult to take full responsibility for organizing a test or a prescription. And I do politely request my colleagues in primary care to try and sort that out. But if there's an issue, by all means, I can definitely help out and sort it out. In terms of clinical responsibility, it's a joint responsibility, I think, between the primary care physician and me. But again, I think it varies from a case-to-case basis, so to say. I was just going to add as well, Sarah, that, you know, part of the responsibilities and the quality of the information both ways as well. So for secondary care colleagues to be able to give appropriate advice, we need to make sure that we're giving appropriate sort of clinical background, um, past medical history, what medications they're on. Um, and it, the same the other way around, that, you know, the advice needs to have more than, uh, you know, some of them are quick ones. Some of them might be, well, if this doesn't work, again, for some of the chronic conditions. So, for example, with dermatology, there might be an advice of use this particular treatment for four weeks. If it doesn't work, maybe think about this. And if that still doesn't work, then, uh, yeah, we would need to see them in clinic. So it's almost like a care plan to primary care as opposed to just a specific treatment for, for some of the patients. So again, you know, depending on the condition, but I think that the quality information f- both ways makes a huge difference for that, you know, the responsibility as well. I think as a, as a general principle, as healthcare professionals, we're all accountable for every piece of advice that we give and we, we sort of share that between us and and it's not that much different to an outpatient consultation that I might suggest something to a colleague and these these discussions have been going on forever yeah. in terms of GP phones consultants ask for advice the beauty of advice and guidance is those telephone calls never got recorded what was said at the yeah. time never got documented we'd very rarely like to write a letter to uh, to back that telephone consultation up whereas advice and guide it's there in black and white forever and we can clearly see what advice what i was asked to give and we can clearly see what my advice was given at the time so that's another tremendous asset of advice and guidance you can refer back uh, to, to see what you said i was just going to add sarah if it's okay as well that you know the other part of that for in, in general practice is um it's logged with the actual advice that was given because it's written into the patient record as well. So, you know, like we just, uh, Phil was saying with the telephone, it's, it's overall, it's a summary of the phone call conversation that the person puts in the notes. This is the actual response that goes in. And what helps in general practice is if somebody else sees that patient next, that advice is still within the notes that, you know, so they can, they can, they're aware of that information as well. You'd be surprised at the number of things that Dr. Bliss has said. And then when Dr. Bliss reads what Dr. Bliss has said, doesn't really recognise those words. Quite, <laughs> likewise. <laughs> so it must be quite nice from your side to actually have it documented properly as well. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we thought we'd take the opportunity for the next part of the episode to 
sort of use the podcast as a bit of a platform um, to share some learning about common themes and common advice that um, you do give to GPs to maybe even reduce the advice and guidance that's coming through um, to yourself. Um, so Phil and Karthik, can you talk us through some of the, the kind of common um, requests that you get on advice and guidance and what sort of advice you might give in those situations? Yes, yeah, so there's a few common themes. One of the commonest ones is abnormal liver function tests. Uh, and I can refer you to an earlier podcast in this series by a very eminent gastroenterologist from Wigan <laughs> who describes how to manage patients with abnormal liver function tests. But we, st- we, st- we still get those through because uh, I still think it, it raises a lot of concerns amongst GPs. Most of the time we can we can deal with it quite quite readily. We've got a pathway how to manage abnormal liver function tests, which I always attach to the advice and guidance. And I, I try and make it as educational as possible so people do develop confidence to manage it themselves without referring into advice and guidance. Uh, we get a lot of requests about anemia. Is it iron deficiency anemia? How should do we investigate? And a lot of the time it's patients who've got what we call anemia of chronic disease. But then I think they just welcome the, the reassurance I think this patient's got anemia of chronic disease. What do you think? And I say, you're dead right. He's got anemia of chronic disease. And we can avoid referral to the surgeons or ourselves. Another common theme is patients with recurrent symptoms. Now, I find these the most difficult to deal with because a lot of the gastro conditions, dyspepsia, irritable bowel syndrome, they're lifelong conditions and patients will keep consulting with the GPs and they might have been investigated in 2018, they might have had a gastroscopy or they might have had a colonoscopy then and they come they come back and the question, shall, shall we go around the houses again? And they're the most difficult ones to deal with and it, I couldn't really give a podcast about what to do with those. It has to be a case-by-case a, 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 a case basis and sometimes with, with those I have to have the advice and give what I say, but I always finish off by, but if you are worried, please refer because because there's nothing like chatting to the patient yourself as a gastroenterologist or even eyeballing them in, in the clinic and, and getting a, a feel for it. The sort of the soft side of medicine that you can't really put in a textbook or clarify, quantify with a test. Lots of grey areas. So it's nice to share dealing with that level of uncertainty. Um, and Karthik, for you, what's... Um, the first one is ECGs. Um, so... <laughs> Can you advise on this patient who had an ECG, is asymptomatic, but he's got a left bundle branch block? And then I tend to go back and find a left bundle branch block ECG from 2017 or 2012 or 2009 and reassure the colleague that is an old change. Or if it's a new change, it's usually because of hypertensive heart disease or uh, one of those things. And again, the ECGs where there are non-specific T-wave inversions or ST T-wave changes in a completely asymptomatic person. And what do we do? So again, it's purely reassurance. That's one common theme. The second one is palpitations. And same uh, as Phil was saying, these patients have had extensive investigations in the past, a 24-hour tape, a 72-hour tape, a seven-day event recorder, an echo. Yeah. And the palpitations will have calmed down and they come back again with palpitations and we go back and doing all the tests again and making sure they're all right. In a, in a, in a, as also the thyroid function and hemoglobins and stuff like that. And the third thing is... Um, Again, breathlessness. Again, whether it's because of a respiratory cause or it's a cardiac cause or anything else. And again, there are there are pathways that look at breathlessness, you know, things like getting BNP levels checked to rule out heart failure and stuff. So these are the three sort of common themes. Mm-hmm. An additional theme that is coming up more often and recurrently nowadays is 
when patients come for investigations in the department and they have an echo and they've got a bit of a tricuspid regurgitation, a bit of a mitral regurgitation, a bit of um, possible pulmonary hypertension, our physiologists are documenting and saying, if concerned, please seek uh, cardiology ANG. So again, it's um, either advice or we tend to ask to see the patient face to face to reassure the patient and the primary care colleague that these these tiny valvular leaks are not of any serious consequence and nothing further needs to be done. Fortunately for us, we have an imaging colleague who also looks at these echo reports when I show it to him and he sort of promptly says, yeah, I agree with you. Just leave the patient alone, my conservative management, that sort of thing. So these are the four themes, ECGs, palpitations, breathlessness, and apparently abnormal um, cardiac investigation result. So that's a tricky one with the, can I just ask, just in case I can reduce my advice and guidance burden to you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for a left bundle bunch buck and you've gone through all the notes and, and I can't find a, a, that, that it's old, I, I can't find an old one, it's new, but you've gone to the patient, you've asked them absolutely no symptoms, you've done it as part of a new diagnosis of hypertension. They've never had any symptoms, they're currently not short of breath, they've not got you know any signs of CCF or anything like that. I, I guess there's not many kind of complete to definitive answers in, in uh, medicine, but is that always okay then if, if you've got... Uh, if, yeah, if they're completely asymptomatic and if they have a reason to have left bundle branch block like uh, hypertensive heart disease and, uh, you know, LVH with, uh, with voltage criteria, then yes. But again, you could consider doing a baseline echo to look at the left ventricular wall thickness um, that will be helpful. And if they have LVH and they are known to have hypertension and the blood pressures are not well controlled, um, there you have an answer. But then again, if the echo hasn't been too bad and LV thickness is not much, and if the blood pressures have not been terribly high, but they have a good story of, you know, they might have had chest pain a few months ago, a few, you know, a year ago or something, and they thought it was indigestion, now, stuff like that, then it's always good to ask for ANG and we mm. can sort of discuss that. And if if they have uh, an appropriate history, then we could investigate them, do a, a stress echo or do a CT angiogram if they're a young person. And we do come across more and more non-pathological left bundle branch block in our specialty, although classical teaching says that right bundle branch block can be a normal variant in young individuals, whereas left bundle branch block is pathological. But we do come across the not so completely pathological left bundle branch blocks with no serious consequence in patients as well. So I think it's it, it's a tricky one even mm -hmm. for us, I must admit. And it, we can just go by what the clinical individual clinical situation is and then act upon it accordingly. Thank you. Lovely. So let's go for, let's ask you now, Nikesh, um, some potential examples that you might think about as appropriate for um, advice and guidance, do you think? Have you got any examples there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, th th there's one just to mention that that, that was sorted, uh, Carthy, when you mentioned about the echo is I did have a patient with aortic stenosis. It was sort of moderate aortic stenosis, but during the pandemic, for, for whatever reason, uh, had been lost to follow up. And we sometimes get this in general practice where we're not really sure what, you know, why, why a particular patient hasn't been seen. And the option, one option would have been referring to outpatient cardiology to say, can you please follow this chap up? We, we, for whatever reason, he's not been seen for a couple of years. But when we sent it through advice and guidance, I think within two weeks, Karthik had organized an echo for him and booked him into outpatient clinic. And again, all of that done much, much quicker. So as a GP, you know, I didn't have to worry about arranging the echo, wait for the results, get back in touch with cardiology. 
all of that was organized um, through through Carthic and in the cardiology teams, and that patient was then seen in clinic. Uh, so it was just a, a, an example that came to mind when you mentioned that as well. I think if, if it's okay, I've got maybe one example for each and maybe see what the advice would be if it, you know, if it did go through in that way as well. So obviously we've changed a lot of the details, but I've just looked through some of our, our clinics uh, where patients are waiting to be seen. And the a cardiology example initially that we had was a 62-year-old male with a background of type 2 diabetes and hypertension who's got a blood pressure of 169 over 77 uh, and currently on two treatments, one maximum dose ramipril, and he's on bendroflumathiazide. Uh, the kidney tests and his HbA1c are okay, but his problem is he's got lots of intolerances to lots of medications. So we do see this a lot in general practice. So leg swelling problems with amlodipine. It had side effects with nifidipine and doxazacin. And he was referred routinely to be seen in cardiology clinic back in about June this year. So if we just looked at that maybe as an advice, and if I sent that as an advice, um, just seeing what, what that might be from, from you, Karthik. Um, first of all, yes, you've shared a blood pressure reading of about 170 systolic over 77. I would probably want him to do some home blood pressure readings, yeah. get a trend of what his readings are at home in the first instance, make sure he doesn't have a bit of a white coat hypertension number one and ensure that he's compliant with treatment and stuff like that the usual things which you always do anyway and if we have confirmed that it certainly is a high reading even at home despite his treatment and he's got intolerances to amlodipine nifedipine doxazosin spironolactone may be considered although his potassium is 4.6 but he will need prompt monitoring of his potassium on a regular basis the other alternate drugs we could consider using in this patient would be uh, maybe moxonidin or hydrolazine as an option, so centrally acting uh, antihypertensive drugs. Or we could see whether he had ankle swelling with 5 milligrams of amlodipine or 10 milligrams of amlodipine. And if it was 10 milligrams, maybe try and convince him to take only 5 mg and see if it recurs because currently he's on ramipril and he's on bendroflozide, both of which will counteract any ankle swelling because bendroflozide is a good drug as a diuretic to avoid ankle swelling. So it might still be worth trying only 5 milligrams of amlodipine. And personally, and I've always said this, and when I write to primary care colleagues, I tell them that I have not personally seen any additional blood pressure lowering effects with 10 milligrams of amlodipine compared to 5, but it certainly does increase the risk of a lower limb swelling, particularly in women. So um, that's something you can try, uh, 5 milligrams. There are options here, amlodipine again, moxonidine, hydrolazine, and again, spanolactone. If you really, really have to give spanolactone, but watching his potassium closely. So, yeah. So again, even from my perspective, I, I don't know what you think as well, Sarah, I, I wasn't aware of the amlodipine five milligrams being as effective as 10 um, and, and and the increased ankle swelling risk with, with going oh, yeah, on to no. the 10. So I think that, that that sort of educational feedback would then alter some of the discussions I'd have, you know, yeah, with patients yeah. going forward as well. Yeah, that's good about the bendroflumophiazide as well. That's a really good tip. Yeah. And if, if I just brought up maybe one more patient then from, from a gastro perspective, of, again, somebody who is on one of our waiting lists, but again, we've changed a lot of the background information. Uh, so a 75-year-old female with a background of ischemic heart disease who presents with abnormal LFTs. So we, we kind of identified this as a, as a common theme. And since coming back from a holiday, her liver function tests have been abnormal. And, and we have checked on a couple of occasions that it, it's not alcohol-related. 
And I think the confusing thing for the liver picture was it's sort of predominantly a hepatic picture. So the ALT was raised with the ALP as well. But now the ALT seems to be improving, but the ALP still risen a bit further. And we've done what we would normally do, I guess, in this case, which is a liver screen. Um, and we've done uh, an ultrasound of the liver as well, which didn't show any gallstones or, or any obvious cause for that as well. Uh, and I think the only other thing that came on her blood test was a cholesterol was raised maybe at about, I think it was around six or somewhere around there as well. So this lady's currently waiting in the outpatient clinic queue for a review in the liver clinic. So just seeing if there was any advice, Phil, for, for this particular patient. I mean, a normal liver screen is is reassuring. And the overwhelming majority of patients with normal liver function tests don't go on to have serious liver disease. The commonest cause for abnormal liver function tests is is fatty liver, the four causes of which are being overweight, being diabetic, drinking too much, or having high cholesterol. So this lady's got a dyslipidemia. So my initial common things being common, it's probably fatty liver. Having said that, the ALT is a little bit high for fatty liver, and it probably is a little bit high for alcohol as well, to be fair. Uh, but it's it's worth doing a, one of the non-invasive tests of liver fibrosis. You can do your, your NAFL score or the FIB4 score. The FIB4 score is probably easier to do because there's less parameters in it. And it gives you good predictive value if, they've, if they're going to have a, a fibrosis. If, the, if those scores are raised, then you would then refer the patient through for a fibro scan. And again, a fibro scan is another way, another good non-invasive way of, of reassuring ourselves that there's no serious underlying liver disease. The other thing to bear in mind and sometimes get caught out is that sometimes patients with gallstones can have a hepatitic picture of their, with their liver function test if they get, especially if they get cholangitis, any infection, so stones in the common bile duct, the ALT can go up more than the ALP would in relative terms. Uh, and you start thinking, oh, this must be a hepatitic picture when actually it is a hepatobiliary problem. So the thing is to just check with the patient, was there any history of pain around the time when those liver tests was, ab- was abnormal, particularly if they're fluctuating. You know, one week you'll do them and the, and the LFTs are, are quite abnormal. And then the, in a week's time, they've, they've gone back to normal. You do them again, two weeks later, they're back up again. So that, that might be people who've got microlithiasis in the, in the CBD, which doesn't always get picked up on a transabdominal ultrasound that they might need, either MRCP, magnetic resonance imaging of the, of the bile duct, or endoscopic ultrasound. So don't get caught out with, mm. the, with the gallstones as the cause of the abnormal liver function tests. That's good to know. Yeah, really, really helpful. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that as well. So we'd almost presume because of the normal scan, it wouldn't be anything to do with hepatobiliary sort of side of things and, 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 and possibly causing it as well. The, the, his, the history is very important. Paroxysms of, of acute pain, which, which are short-lived, is quite typical for gallstones. And if, you've, if I've got a strong history suggestive of gallstone disease and the ultrasound's normal, I'll do another ultrasound scan, maybe get one of our radiologists to do it. Not Nothing against the sort of radiographers. But, you know, if you particularly put, if I say I've got a strong index of suspicion, the radiologists will look, maybe to turn the patient over, do lots of different views to try and have a look at that gallbladder. Just check if there are any stones there. Yeah. I was just going to say that it was, that those are two quite nice examples because you said they're on waiting lists currently, Nikesh, but if they'd have gone through um, advice and guidance and those sorts of bits had come back, you can see how things could have been progressing for the patient, even if they might have ended up needing to go back to a clinic, a lot more would have been done in the meantime, which is quite nice. I think you're right. I mean, even from, from our perspective, uh, you know, 
think about it as GPs, these are patients that will still come back to us a few times in between. And to be able to say, actually, we've had that conversation and, and this is the advice so far, I think it just helps not just to reassure them, but I think like we were saying before, it helps reassure us as GPs that we're not missing something or you know, we're not doing something or we should be doing something extra as well. So I think that it really does help from that reassurance point of view. And just for my own learning whilst we're on this topic, it's quite an interesting case in general. I know you said for this lady she had ischemic heart disease and presume no cardiac failure because I was just wondering if that picture, whilst we've got both specialties with us, if that picture could ever be because of cardiac failure? Yeah, that, that, that is quite a common thing that does get overlooked, uh, right-sided heart failure. Whenever we get called to the cardiology ward to see a patient with abnormal liver function tests, it's either amiodarone or it's a uh, heart failure. So we normally know before we go to go go down there. And with heart failure, I don't know why, but the alkali phosphatase tends to up a little bit more than the, the ALT in heart okay. failure. And I, I can't explain that, but that's just a sort of pattern that you see. Uh, but you'd normally see that on the scan. The snogger would comment on the, uh, the size of the hepatic veins. Uh, I was going to ask whether you'd pick it up on a scan. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for that. <laughs> Just like Sarah getting her little bits of learning in. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Personal agenda. Um, so I guess uh, we're coming towards the end um, so thinking about wrapping up what would you each like um, the listeners to take away from today from this discussion we've had about advice and guidance Uh, come and join the party it's great fun Uh, (laughs) you know I I think it'll benefit your patients and hopefully it'll benefit your referral patterns and hopefully allow the patients to be dealt with in an appropriate manner there's no such thing as an inappropriate referral there's just inappropriate ways of dealing with the referrals and advice and guidance is, a, is another way of, of managing that yeah absolutely i agree with phil and i think the more we get we can promptly sort of advise and avoid delays in patient care and it'll be good to sort of carry on doing this and plus it keeps us on our toes as well in terms of keeping us abreast of what's going on in our specialty and advising on a wide variety of things and not just for example, I'm an interventionist, but I still advise on uh, atrial fibrillation, arrhythmias, heart failure. And also, although I am the sole sort of operator for this, I always do uh, ask for my respective subspecialty colleagues to advise and sort of take their advice and feedback. So if it's something to do with AF or ablation and stuff, there's always some input from Dr. Zaki or Dr. Darwin, always. I mean, yeah, I just agree with, with both of those comments in terms of a conclusion that, you know, the Advice and guidance is around and provides a lot in terms of a responsive communication between secondary and primary care. And it's a huge benefit for patients, especially in the current climate as well. And I think if there is a problem within the healthcare system at the moment related to the pandemic, and if this supports that, then then that's an added bonus. But I think the real core part of advice and guidance is it, it brings primary and secondary care a lot closer together. And it really does provide that education benefit back to us. And sometimes we, we don't really get a lot of that in primary care at the moment. So it, it, it's another way of just adding to our learning as well, which, you know, we, we, we need to continuously do as well. That's brilliant. Thank you all so, so much for talking to us today. It was, that's a fabulous episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 
So that was a really lovely chat with um, people we haven't seen in ages. They're absolutely amazing to chat to them again, wasn't it? Yeah, it was so lovely to speak to them. And it feels like a bit of a blast from the past now because um, <laughs> we did those, those they, our first episodes, I, um, I think, were with um, Dr. Bliss and Dr. Dr. Karthik. So um, it was kind of great to revisit that, actually. Yeah. Um, and um, in terms of learning, I think I think it was a little bit unsure about um, approaching an advice and guidance episode, but I hope that we did it in a good way. Um, I definitely took um, quite a bit from it, um, just in terms of actual knowledge about advice and guidance, because even though it had been in use for a few years and I'd found it really helpful myself, um, I didn't think I quite realised about um, how many specialties were now on board, actually, um, yeah. especially in Wigan. And I'm assuming it's a similar picture starting across the country, actually, and just how much use it can be from the secondary care perspective i find that quite interesting and also um the point about the the information transfer mm. i don't think i'd quite appreciated that we need to give secondary care colleagues all of the information so that they can make uh, a, an informed responsible choice yeah i've definitely found when i'm kind of putting together my advice and guidance requests that it is an opportunity to kind of go through i think this is it's very, very difficult to manage time right now in general practice yeah. and the admin burden is massive. And so spending lots of time on referrals and advice and guidance and making them as amazing as they were when I was a trainee is very, yeah. very difficult. But I do find it really useful because actually sometimes I've started writing, um, particularly like cardiology. Oh, you know, do they need this? Do they not? And then I'll finally find something hidden in the, refer you know, in the letters. It'll say the plan or like I'll actually I can see those old ECGs or I can see that this has been challenged before. That's a, that's really common. So yeah. um, so that's actually the whole process of looking at it is really useful. Yeah. Um, and I love the dermatology ones. I use them constantly, especially the pictures, you know, you get permission yeah, to upload so them good that you can do that game changer absolute game yeah. changer yeah so yeah it's it's nice to talk about them with them and it's lovely like um because i do wor worry about the burden for everyone i was wondering how they fit these into their days and also whether they were replacing clinics with that and whether that was actually making yeah. the clinic time worse and actually it sounds like they're really bashing through them quite quickly I, I can't believe they were doing it in their own time yeah. to begin with for such a long time and uh, yeah just it's just nice hearing I think having everyone in the room it's just a really nice opportunity to be able to have two specialists and um like quite a senior GP um, be able to talk about that and bounce that back and forth and get the primary care opinion get the secondary care opinion yeah. it's quite rare that you can sit down and actually just have that kind of chat so I just quite appreciated that oh, experience it was really good I loved asking about the LFTs and it's like oh we've got the cardiologist there and actually <laughs> yeah. what does it look like if you do have a, a CCF pattern and then that, that got answered you know like that actually it's more the ALP than the ALT that goes up and that it should be on the scan but also that about scans that are actually some Sometimes it might may well be that it's it's more of a sort of goldstone or a just slightly more obstructive picture or so coleostatic picture. Yeah, that that it can still be a coleostatic picture. But yeah, I, th I thought it was great. Um, and I, I guess it does validate a lot of the advice and guidance because those funky ECGs that you get that you just thought I really don't know um, and yeah. that you can share that clinical decision with people that you get exactly. something back quickly yeah that rapid turnaround and you're not having to try and trying to get hold of uh, a consultant or a specialist that's not on call it's not urgent it's really quite difficult to try yeah. and fit around your clinic it's the timings and the logistics so to be able to send something off like this is great but still get a rapid response yeah um oh and 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 also just hearing 
from them that it's it's also not a burden to them that they don't mind that they they are happy to answer these um queries is quite nice and reassuring to hear as well i think yeah so thank you very very much for all of them to um to have joined us it was um, quite a big coordination effort so it was it was very yes. kind of them to have all joined us at this time um, and then if any of you have any uh, feedback for us, you can get us in the usual channels. We've got all our information in the episode description so you can get hold of us. And if you want to share um, share the information about this podcast or any others that we do with your friends or colleagues, please do. And we love getting your feedback. It is lovely. And we are actually listening to feedback and we are doing some planning for future episodes. Um, so um, just rest assured that actually we do take that into account. So if you want to get your ideas in, um, then do do that because we will listen. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.